Hey there, welcome to Why We Roll, a tabletop role-playing game design podcast. We're your hosts, Chris Pickett, creator of the historical fantasy game Dance Macabre, and Wythe Marshall, creator of the political sci-fi game Stillfleet. Throughout the show, Chris and Wythe hope to amplify new creative voices. We'll chat with different TTRPG designers, focusing on the world of indie games. We take a curious approach to game design, working through a range of mechanical and narrative questions that are pertinent to many designers, players, and GMs. We hope to showcase fresh and even challenging ideas about what makes imagination-based games just so powerful. Okay, let's find out why we roll. What's up? We are live on Why We Roll, yeah, a TTRPG design podcast. Chris, uh, how's it going? <laughs> it's going great, Wife. How are you doing? Good. Uh, well, I'm very good uh, now that we have uh, my friend, our, our guest, uh, Will Savino, here as well. Hey, Will. Thanks for joining. Hey, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming uh, on. And, uh, yeah, thanks for making time. It's always good to see you too, Chris. Uh, and we always have stuff to catch up about. Um, today, we have lots to talk about, not just in terms of um, RPG writing, but also, uh, since Will is a dual threat here, uh, music. So this is a fun episode because we can talk about both, you know, design and, and writing and mechanics and jamming, but also um, the tunes. Yeah. So thanks a lot. And yeah, well, there's there's tons to dig into. Um, maybe you should start, Will, do you want to do like an, an intro? Like what's your, what are your bona fides here? Yeah. Um... <laughs> what makes you a double threat? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here are the two threats I am making today. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so my name is Will Savino. I, um, for a while, the one thing that I was doing professionally in the tabletop world was writing music under the name Music D20. Um, that was pretty much like 50% of my workload for a few years. The idea was that I would, uh, the, the, the high level concept was I was going to write enough music so that you could score an entire fantasy-ish tabletop campaign, like from from low level to killing God, um, and you would never encounter a scenario in which you didn't have the right music. Um, I, I, people tell me that they've done that, like they've done full campaigns with my music, so I'm going to say I did it. Um, partway through working on that, I teamed up with uh, a, a couple buddies to create a project called Burrowbound. Um, that's pretty much like 95% of my workload these days and, and where, where I dedicate um, most of my uh, tabletop efforts. Burrowbound is a project where we create system agnostic tabletop city settings. Um, city interpreted super broadly, basically just places where people live. Um, so what we do with each of our settings is that uh, we create a really big map that you can use either by printing it out, which no one does, or in a virtual tabletop. And these maps are like massive, like when they're open, I can't have a lot of other stuff open on my computer because they're really big if you're using the full maps. Um, they're super colorful. We release a bunch of different variants of them so you can do like different seasons. Um, along with those maps, we release giant um, guides for each setting. So hundreds and hundreds of pages we've written. And these guides have like lore about the place, but also like what NPCs are there, art of the NPCs, descriptions of points of interest, plot hooks, 
rollable tables, unique mechanics, um, kind of weird philosophizing from me in bits of box text. Um, so I rate all that. We have a couple of incredible illustrators who handle like beautiful landscapes and NPC art, a really cool editor. And then we also release some sort of EP or album for every setting that we drop. So I think we're working on our 17th setting, something like that now. Um, so just a whole bunch of EPs and each one is like totally a different theme, you know, mostly in the vaguely fantasy realm of things, but um, pretty wide mix. You know, there's like Mesoamerican jungle vibes. There's right now we're working on like a, a, a cowboy Western, but in hell, like canonical hell. So that one, you know, what genre is that? Well, bro, it just, it, you know, it's cowboy in hell, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, more traditional fantasy stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a wide mix. So, you know, adding to that, um, everything you need between killing goblins and killing God. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I imagine, um, for cowboys in hell that it would be something like a spaghetti Western, but instead of like a mouth harp or something, it's just screams in the yeah. background. It's terrible. <laughs> So, you know, like the goal is always to make stuff that people will use in game. I mean, this is already like a, a weirdly big question. The idea that I try to have when I'm writing music is always like, this is a theoretical score to a theoretical scene in a theoretical campaign. As much as I enjoy writing, like, this is a theme song. Like, if it doesn't really make sense, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a GM would actually put this on during a session. I probably try to lean to do something else. That being said, like, yeah, sometimes things get like a little gritty and like a little angular. Uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any actual screams on that EP, but <laughs> I've, I've definitely used screams in other music before for sure. Nice. And it, and yeah, Spaghetti Western. It's Spaghetti Western, but like with uh, dissonance in spooky carnival stuff yeah. and uh, a little bit more crunch. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a favorite or does it change all the time? Like, is there music you, I, I feel like you've, I've talked with you about this in the past. There's stuff where you think you were more successful and stuff where you're like, ah, I don't really listen to this one as much, but do, is it constantly evolving or do you feel like there's standouts like this world? I totally nailed the sound of, you know what I mean? Like, cause some of them are tricky. Like you're saying like, how, what is yeah. the sound of hell versus like goblin flute music or whatever? I mean, it's weird because like, I feel, I, I feel like the more uh, uh, specific the setting is the, the, the more successful it feels to nail, right? Like we have one, we have one setting that's basically just like, I mean, the lore of it's more complicated, but the aesthetic of it is like Renaissance European. And I went to, I went to school for music. I can make like Renaissance European music. Like, like that's, that was my training. So there's not really like a translation thing going on there. And like, I got that. That's the EP Crabwell. It's, our most popular music for better or for worse. And it's, you know, here's some counterpoint, here's some lyres and lutes and, you know, little, little old recorders and stuff. And that's accurate. And I, and I nailed it, but you know, it doesn't feel as good as having, I think I nailed, we have a flying goblin, we call it diesel punk setting group jit jit, which yeah, we did a still fleet crossover with, which is, which was super fun. And, that one, yeah, like, I feel like I got that. I feel like, you know, I could get in the head of, like, a like a, like a a goblin in the sky. So <laughs> that one was definitely more satisfying to nail because it's more niche. It's more nuanced, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to say, I was looking at uh, Grook Jit Jit before. Yeah, we, that's the one. 
<laughs> before we hopped on. I mean, it's a really cool setting. You know, I'm just like looking at kind of the um, the bit that you have on your website about it. But it's a really interesting setting. And I, I love the names of some of the tracks that you have on here. Like Claim the Fire is the first track. Um, that feels goblin-y. Yeah, it yeah. feels very goblin-y. <laughs> Horde Breaker, that's amazing. I also think all your names are, are pretty good, Will, not to just be like fanboyish, but I mean, I feel like you have the, the same impulse I do, which is not like very, very straightforward short names, but kind of longer, poetic, evocative. Like you kind of have names where you want to lean in and scratch your head and be like, what, what is that? Like, I want to know the, the context of the scene that produced this like rando phrase from the middle of a sentence, you know? I like, I think names uh, are important. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a bit of both really, because so much of the, I know that overwhelmingly the people who listen to my music aren't like, Hey, I'm, <laughs> I have, I've data for this, right? People who listen to Will Sabino tracks are not are overwhelmingly not playing like, Oh, I'm playing the canonical version of group jit jit. I've got the guide open on my iPad and I've got all the NPC art and I'm playing in a, in foundry virtual tabletop and I've got all the tokens and I press play on the playlist and I just let it work overwhelmingly like that's not how people listen to my music they just put on a playlist on spotify right. and then they don't look at the track names so that's annoying i mean it's not annoying it's like fine like like that's just that's how people listen to music and that's fine but for those people who are like looking for the right track and then who who are or probably like like i feel like this is not tooting my own horn like they're not people who have professionally scored stuff before when you're a gm and you're deciding what music to play like you are stepping into the the shoes of like a music supervisor or something if, if it were the equivalent of like you know working on a movie or something like there is a scene that you have helped to create and that you're collaborating with your players on but you usually the gym but sometimes a player have to decide what music is going to encapsulate that scene or maybe like direct the energy of the party or maybe like represent something aesthetically about the setting and that's hard like, even when it's just like, I'll do tavern music, bro, like a tavern can sound like a million different things, right? So I think Jack Titles help with that. Not to, not to <laughs> give a really long answer to something that wasn't a question. No, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's called the conversation, Will. Yeah, it's easier. It's easier for Burrowbound as well, because we can just like, I also write the setting guides. So worst comes worst, I'll just pick a proper noun, <laughs> right? Yeah, right, like, right. Just like grab some stuff that's like in the setting, like some NPC that this music is supposed to in some way yeah. represent or accompany like roughly roughly matches that and sounds weird enough anyway yeah uh, yeah exactly yeah i mean I, and some of it oh go yeah go ahead i was gonna say uh you know uh for me like i wife knows this about me i probably talk about it too much i love dungeon synth like yeah okay, <laughs> i'm a yeah. huge dungeon synth fan and uh yeah one of the things that i really love about finding new dungeon synth tracks is the naming conventions like i think there's a whole dweller track that's titled uh, under the long bow, I smoke my pipe or something like that. It's just like, it, it has this way of like evoking the feeling of the song before you even start listening to it. So you do have this point of entry into being like, okay, this is going to be like a chill song instead of like a, a hell cowboy uh, dungeon kind of thing. The, the, because of like the, the low barrier to entry for making dungeon synth music, I feel like there are, there's like a huge number of dungeon synth composers who are, like comically prolific. Oh yeah. Like I've just released just like dozens and dozens and dozens of albums. And if you scroll through them all at once, you can like 
decipher oh yeah i can tell like which campaign all of these tracks are from yeah. you are telling it's not just like i'm trying to create like a story like you're, you're literally just repeating a story that that did happen yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can tell what fantasy novel or series they're reading yeah, at the moment right. it's like oh you're on your yeah. fifth reread of lord of the rings fellowship of the rings so <laughs> this is what was produced in that time totally um which is totally fun but it's it does it's it's interesting to think about it as a job like you you're not doing it i mean I, I, maybe their dungeon synth many dungeon synth people are also pros but i imagine some of it's like a hobbyism thing you know yeah. they're, they're like taking their yeah. campaign their experience and like you know regurgitating it in a new form in art which like we've probably all done to some degree drawing your your pc or you know what i mean like even the map I, I like making the maps i don't think i can draw people that well but i think i can like mess with photoshop but i've never tried to make like music for my personal games i've certainly never thought about like if i was professionally doing the soundtracks like will um we work you know like i asked you about like making music for Stillfleet, and that was really interesting to think about and the same with like sam tindall and the other artists who are involved like what does that sound like um and and you do this every, every month so i don't know is is part of what keeps it fresh the genre mixing that you're talking about like okay it's cowboys but it's also hell or you know what i mean like do you have a lot of ideas in your head for like how to keep it interesting and not you know regurgitational if that's a word yeah i mean the the um i mean i'm like circling back to just like the whole point of this show <laughs> like the thing that makes it interesting instead of just being like i go to work i come and sit in this chair and make music every day like if it were me in isolation still doing it like i was in my music d20 days i would feel like i was going kind of crazy the same way that like most people don't have it in them to just write a whole ass fantasy novel without any other input it's specifically the collaborative element that makes this doable for me like Burrowbound is a team of so james our primary map maker he's full-time with this i'm full-time with this we have 10 contractors some of who are pretty close to full-time um but like that's a team of 12 making all this weird stuff and it's being able to like bounce ideas around and like you know cowboys in hell didn't just come from like one person right like the like the fundamental idea came about in an all hands meeting which like are the most fun i love our all hands meetings because it's always just like crazy brainstorm you know throw everything at the wall see what sticks and finding like the 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 through line or like the the exact way to understand the aesthetic of one of our settings is 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 so much more fulfilling than just like yeah i know people said they want more tavern tracks from music d20 i guess i'll make more tavern tracks which is fine like i like making that stuff but it but it but it is more fun when it is um the result of you know it's just a more interesting process when there's more people involved mm -hmm. just like in in a in, in a in a vacuum it's it's you will get more interesting ideas when two people are synthesizing as opposed to just like one guy being like i don't know underwater you know <laughs> <laughs> put some bubbles on it i don't know yeah <laughs> that's so cool um but the genre mixing is yeah the genre mixing is great too and and the the really oh god you know like not to get into like the business of this but the annoying truth is um almost without exception my most popular tracks that earn me like a non-trivial percentage of you know the money that i use to pay bills is um 
the most um, aesthetically safe music that I make. I mean, there's, I guess this should come as no surprise, but even though I think in, a, in, in, in more ways than just aesthetic adventurousness, a lot of my non-traditional fantasy music is better, it's so much easier to make money off of, like, here's a tavern tune, here's European faux renaissance through a cinematic lens here's slow string music because that's what people put on like fantasy tavern playlists or music for sleeping playlists or vaguely celtic nordic relaxing sleepy music playlists and like i i hate making money from spotify and, and having to cater to that but um you know because because of patreon I, I don't have to right and sort of split the difference and make the weird burrowground stuff too that's great. Yeah. I think we should talk business. I mean, I don't know, Chris, I mean, you're, I feel like in the past, you know, I've talked about this. It's like, it's important part of the show in a way. It's like, if people do want to make any money, it's almost like um, the problem of indie anything is, is, oh, money's a bad thing. Being professional is a bad thing. But then at the end of the day, that means you're working somewhere else right. that sucks, you know, <laughs> that probably is doing something you don't feel morally great yeah. about. So it's like, well, wait, how would you then do your own thing that you feel at least a little better about? It's not like, okay, making cool music or writing cool books is going to save the world, but at least you don't feel at, you know, as bad doing it. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, it's great that anyway, that, that you've been successful in making that transition. And I know that was something I, that you... I feel that that sounded like weirdly cynical or pessimistic. Um, uh, I feel overjoyed that, that Burrow Bound has um, found the success that it has partially because I mean, what we're creating is is a, is a different niche, right? Like, yeah, sure, you'll find a lot of people on Patreon or whatever who sell maps and make a lot of money, which is awesome and insane that artists can, you know, put JPEGs online and become millionaires. <laughs> like, that's, that is cool. Like, and doing so without, like, Web3. That's cool, right? Oh, millionaires, <laughs> um, what am I doing wrong? I know, I know. I, I think about that sometimes, too. <laughs> Burrowbound is not doing that. Um, uh, but um, being able to make something that is, um, you know, everything in our settings is like, it's, it's progressive. It is system agnostic. We're not just doing like, here's, uh, sorry, you guys say Dragon Game. This is, uh, this is Dragon Game, 5th edition, homebrew. This is, you know specifically stuff catering towards people with a solely combat mindset. Mm -hmm. Like we can make stuff that is like cool and weird and, you know, anti-colonial and uh, we can have a bunch of uh, artists make a living off it. You're right. It's not saving the world, but it's cool that our team can do that instead of like solely doing jobs they hate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the sort of like uh, uh, a counterpoint to the, to the, um, purist viewpoint. It's like, okay, well, we, we are, we are making something with in mind that we'll, we'll make some money off of it. And it may not be like as, uh, zany and like, I don't know, maybe like, uh, uh, like aesthetically transgressive as we could be doing, but we're making cool stuff that we like and we're, we're making a living doing it. Yeah. And I mean, you're still engaging in like larger conversations that need to happen, right? Especially uh, yeah. within gaming with the history of the dragon game and a lot of other, you know, uh, there's a lot of colonialism in tabletop. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can find a way to, to be a part of that conversation, I think, you know, 
hats off. That's a, that's not an easy thing to do. It's really fun to, um, I, I think it's easier specifically in the, the content that we make because we don't have to focus solely on like, I, I think it, obviously people tell really cool stories purely through mechanics, right? Like, um, I mean, uh, Stillfleet is great about this, about the way that like mechanics represent narrative ideas, but, um, when you don't even know what system people are going to use to, uh, engage with your setting, the way you talk to GMs in the text, um, gets to be a little more wishy-washy. You're not just saying, yeah, roll these dice. You have to say, when translating this setting to the system of your choice, perhaps consider, and then in that perhaps consider part, you get to be like, hey, like, <laughs> if the players don't try to save the slave NPCs in this setting, like, your players are bad, and you should, one, like, obviously punish them in some way, like, narratively and mechanically, and also, like, just get different friends to play games with. <laughs> if your friends, like like in a fantasy game encounter slaves and they're like, okay, like bro, like just free the slaves. It's, it's a game. Like it's the one time where like, it's, that's easy comparative. There's a text box um, that just says, reconsider your life choices. <laughs> I guess you can just do that. Right. And you can do that in, in game books as well. And I think a lot of like newer indie tabletop games are really good about, um, being more upfront about that. Yeah. And like communicating philosophy, yeah. mm-hmm. not like, but you know gaming philosophy yeah yeah um and political philosophy and the way that that ought to or or can intersect at the table um yeah we, it's so fun we did it's that so fun with... and it's a, it's, a, it's a way to you know you, you choose your audience right mm-hmm. um, yeah in how you make things and we have fostered a really cool community of people who um are, are down with the ways that we um, engage with fictional settings. Seems obvious when you put it like that, right? But that's neat, you know? We don't get, like, um, dickhead, like, 40K doesn't realize they're a fascist war gamers um, in our <laughs> settings because the moment you start engaging with the material, like, it'll just weed those people out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, and it's also doing something new and doing something post OSR I think we're firmly maybe in that world was reading a you know some blog posts about this and it's it seems convincing uh to say you know there was like the earlier the TSR era the OSR and then now we're like you know in this new world of gaming and so you're starting afresh you don't have the momentum you don't have the, the baggage um so to be you know to steel man whatever is happening at, at Hasbro it's like they're dealing with your you know 50 years or whatever of history of yeah. war gaming chain mail fighting men and monsters you know so it's interesting to, to just try it anew. And, and yeah, that's something, um, obviously, we've, with Stillfleet, that was kind of the whole point. And I know, um, Chris, that's something you and I have talked about a lot and why we wanted to do the show is to talk about, like, the politics of games. Yeah. And a lot of our guests, that's kind of something where that's, like, a big through line. I, I will just say I just read um, the preview version of Eat the Reich by Rowan Rick and Deckard. And um, that, ha- you know, it's By the way, about- the, best, the best tabletop, ta- tabletop launch video yeah, uh, I think yeah. I've the ever fun, seen. quite good. Yeah, uh, fun branding. Yeah. The, the exact I think I'm gonna remember this correctly. The, the exact wording was I believe it said, Drink all of Hitler's blood. All of, like, all, all, like all, of yeah. all of makes that such a it's wow, so I think weird. I dropped when we were at uh, uh, Gen Con this at Gen Con, I think yeah. I, yeah, I think I think we I think I watched it. And I was like, Oh, well, this is the thing I'm most excited about. But like, <laughs> but like reading the book, it's like 
I, I, I'm not, um, I'm always a fan of Grant Howitt's work. And in general, yeah. I think this stuff is well-written and interesting. It's also like not, to me, it's not transformative the way like Spire is super cool. Um, but I do think um, it's more like the hollows. Like it's, it's a fighter game for fighting. You like combat, but it's um, the thing that's interesting is how they handle Nazism and they really go out of their way to, to um, just be very prescriptive to the GMs. Like these are things we think work really well at the table. These are things we really, really think you shouldn't do. And here's why. Yeah. And it's not long. It's not, annoying it's not like preachy it's just simple it's like hey think about it if you start doing a bad german accent and yelling how much you hate you know insert group of people here who the nazis historically murdered it's probably a downer and it's also like what if your neighbor you know it's just like awkward like on all levels and it's not necessary for the kinds of things that you you do in this game and think about the best moments from you know the movies you've watched in world war ii or whatever like how much of them relied on like you enacting actual evil shit versus kind of, you know, hand-waving or montage or like, yeah. you know, finding these other moments. And so it, it just was an interesting take on like, cause I wondered how they would deal with that when I, when I saw, you know, the, the ads for it and stuff like, all right, how is this game going to deal with, you know, historical evil. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's really interesting that you have this opportunity with Burrowband, especially it's almost like you're doing a new game every month in that sense, like it's stripping the mechanics away where you're doing a new setting and yeah. you have to deal with like, like you did an industrial one where there's like, you know class consciousness right i i forget the name of it uh but it was good um, yeah <laughs> thanks <laughs> yeah you do you do like a lot of them with different like i wondered actually about the um i don't know if you could speak to the one that was mesoamerican themed where yeah it was kind of there was like a colonial thing happening i don't i only read like the quick intro so i don't have all the the materials for that but so, that was so another that, one that that i came to mind Zahuatl. that was definitely the, the zahuatl ruins yeah that was the that was the trickiest that was the trickiest setting that we've made um from a uh you know socio-political standpoint the whole idea of this setting is it's a mesoamerican faux mesoamerican ruins um in a jungle the idea is this is the archaeological find of the century and um classic colonial like uh adventurer trope people are going to that ruins to try to loot it essentially Mm -hmm. right find treasure achieve glory fight against the indigenous kobold populations um do all the things that we know real life european white explorers did um as uh you know they started exploring the rest of the world now obviously we don't I mean, I say obviously, but, you know, D&D hasn't confronted this in many instances. That's like a really ugly trope the moment you start dealing with actual populations, yeah. right? Like dungeon delving is one of my favorite parts of tabletop gaming. I really like that. I, I like designing dungeons. I like uh, just the experience of like the the pacing of, you know, the, 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 the five room dungeon, right? Like, like I like that, that archetype, but... I think it's always important to 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 confront the, the, the context of it. So the real story of Zahuatl ruins that the players don't know, but the GM does, is that the whole ruins are a trap. It was built by a dragon, and this also really odious white colonial spoilers. But, um, also, this uh, uh, who, a dragon who teamed up with a really awful Dutch East India guy stand-in, right, and. Uh, the two of them built this specifically as a way to lure in colonizers and make it look like, oh, it's actually a really easy dungeon and it's filled with good loot and it's easy. And like the, and like, so your 
presumably your players who are not thinking too carefully yet, loot it, probably engage in some really deceptively easy combat. And then once there's like the, the dungeon hits a breaking point, the dragon and all these kobolds and all these mimics turn the tables on the players and all of the NPCs. And they're like, ha you idiots, we're actually very powerful. And now you're all going to uh, suffer. We are fighting back against colonizers. And if that's the whole punchline to the adventure, I, I, I think it works, kind of. Like, oh, okay, so all the colonizers had their comeuppance and a dragon killed them. And this is a pretty violent, but like, okay, anti-colonial story. I think that that's like an okay way to do that adventure. But in thinking about it more, uh, uh, we ended up releasing a supplement for it where in addition to freeing the enslaved indigenous kobolds, fighting back against these like twin urch villains, you know, this, this, uh, this like head colonizer and the dragon who was also subjugating the kobolds in her own way, um, you take it to them. And then also it's like, okay, we have let a bunch of colonizers suffer a bad fate. We have um, survived this incident. We have hopefully in some way subdued uh, great villains, both local and from abroad. The, the more interesting story is, okay, and then like, and then what, right? Do you help the kobolds to rebuild? Do the kobolds reclaim this without, you know, white savior probably party helping out? Like, do you just leave? I think that's a more interesting story and uh, one where you can, you know, explore anti-colonial themes with a bit more nuance if you have the party for it. But honestly, like a part of me regrets even releasing that uh, that whole module because I, I think a lot of people are going to misinterpret it or I don't want to say play it wrong, but, you know, we tried to offer like a, a slew of guidelines in there about like, how do you make it clear that your players should feel bad about not questioning their decisions to loot this dungeon and I don't know, that's a tricky question. I don't know if, if, if either of you have answers to that, but you know, how do you tell a story in which players have agency, but you also want to be moralistic? Maybe that's just not the place for tabletop gaming, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, it's curious too, because I think something that Wythe and I have talked about before is that a lot of game systems have inherent politics built into them. So when you're writing these agnostic settings for it, there's only so much that like you're pushing back against both like the player characters, the GM to a degree, as well as the system that they're running, you know? Um, it's like, if you're running that in BX dragon game, it's like, you know, there's a, um, I guess there's like a ludo narrative dissonance that's happening there. Yeah. Right. Mm. Where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we, we can free these people, but the way that we grow and the way that we get XP is by bringing back the gold. So we're going to sure. do that instead. Um, yeah. You'd have to hack. Yeah. If you're, t yeah, you're talking about OSR dragon game where it's gold focused, you'd have to hack it more. Whereas with like 5e, that is one difference. You wouldn't have to hack it as much because you could tie experience points to good deeds. And I, I literally don't know a single 
person, I know a lot of people who play 5e, I don't know anyone who uses like traditional XP calculations. It's all just milestone because they all yeah. learned yeah. by listening to actual play podcasts. Yeah. None of them are fucking counting XP. It's always just like, uh, we hit a good breaking point and you're back at a tavern. Now you level up. Yeah, you gain a level. I mean, that's how we, we did it as kids because yeah. it was annoying. Yeah. Like, it pretty, pretty quickly was like, oh, why are we tracking all these numbers? Yeah. I, trying to do it again more, more recently, like early pandemic, it was super not fun it was like yeah no the, the milestones is the way to go um, are better, yeah. but yeah there's like levels of it's it's a spectrum and i and i think it's a question of um i was just talking to a friend who um who's native who's run coyote and crow and was thinking about writing something for it and it's interesting to think about how like that that was something that came up when he ran it with players who were not native and they felt like oh am i sort of allowed to play this game or like how do i approach it yeah and i wonder that with um the scenario you're describing too, where like, what is the role the player is imagining? And this, this gets to kind of eat the Reich as well, where it's like, you're specifically playing monstrous bad guy, like super soldier mercenaries who are only there to do combat, which is very old school D and D, right. right? You're just doing the combat parts, but you're fighting Nazis, you're fighting Hitler. So it's, it's kind of inglorious bastards, right? It's the suicide right. squad idea, which yeah. very much still fleet also kind of does. It's like, you're only really doing the like, elite mercenary exploration space adventure expanse stuff um but with a wink and a nod and the idea that somehow you're going to eventually you know screw over the company that's hired you yeah um but hey that's only that's like a super super specific um constraint so so given i mean you've you've made will a very specific constraint with this whole like oh but actually it's a gotcha with the dragon i mean it's it's kind of fun in that way like how how specific can you get right it reminds me of those one page games it's like at some point you know I there think is like, a right way. There's a, like, <laughs> I don't know. And this is, this is like part of the, this is like the heart of the difficulty of making system agnostic. We don't even write adventure modules, really. I mean, sometimes we have stuff that's kind of module adjacent, but usually it's just like, here's a setting, here's how it works. Here's like maybe unique mechanics about like how this, 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 this setting works, you know, like for our hell cowboy setting, like souls, or a mechanical currency. Um, it's like, here's how that works. But most of the time what we're doing is like, here's a bunch of people, here's the way the world works. Here's, you know, some stuff that might get you off on uh, quests or, you know, um, <laughs> we do like rumor tables. I love shit like that. Um, but we're not saying it, it's, it's really not prescriptive. And maybe, you know, maybe if you did some sort of canonical version of uh, Zahawaddle Ruins where it's like, oh, we realized our mistake. We were bad colonizers. Now we're questioning our own actions, but at least in the process, we can go about uh, saving indigenous people and uh, screwing over the really bad colonizers uh, and also, you know, giving back the land. Like there is a version of that where you can tell like a really good story where the players feel fulfilled both mechanically and narratively and like moralistically, you know, they can, it's so hard to write a, um, a morally complex RPG story if you want to also make it so that there's no risk that a GM will be will accidentally become a fascist, right? <laughs> like it's it, it's it this is like the the grimdark fallacy basically, mm-hmm. right? You can do the 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 great I wouldn't say it's the greatest critique, but you can do a stellar critique of um ultra right-wing politics and no matter how cutting that is someone's going to be like, yeah, I like starship troopers and I did not see it as a satire, right? Like yeah. that will always happen. And, and in tabletop where you don't even have the agency of like controlling um, 
pacing or cinematography or, you know, that becomes even harder. You, there, there's like this um, double lens that always goes into the interpretation of your work. So yeah, commentary is like hard in, in, a, in a tabletop context. I'm sure people play Stillfleet. Um, you know, like I said, you choose your audience. I think most yeah. of the people who, who stumble upon Stillfleet have figured out like, oh, I get it. Like it's anti-capitalism in space. And I mean, not that it's just that, but it's that. I'm sure there are people now already who, who misconstrue that. And yeah. are you causing yeah. legitimate harm by doing that at, like as a game creator? I don't know. That's like a pretty bold. Yeah, and it's like it's people a, are always going to get stuff wrong. Right. It's a problem of like it's sort of a, a a good problem to have. Like if you have enough people doing anything, they're going to break yeah. that thing, right? And yeah. that's a human sort of issue. But there's also questions of of guide rails, and and that's mm-hmm. why I was bringing up like the the careful attention y'all have paid to your social position and what you imagine GMs will get out of this material and players. Um, similar with the thoughts I've had and, and like the example with Ether Reich. And I think it's a little different, but like turning to like religion with like Nas Macabre, I mean, they're similar. I remember playing like um, Wraith as a kid. I don't know if you guys grew up with, but the White Wolf games were so big in my world. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a vampire werewolf, especially Trinity. Wraith was really cool. I didn't get to play it much because no, like there was only one other of my friends who thought Wraith was kind of cool. But the books <laughs> were, the core rule book is all I had. And it's really interesting because it, it was like, okay, there's life after death but we're not going to say anything about religion. And at some point you die in the afterlife and then you go to like final, like we don't know what happens in the final death and no one does in the extended, you know, world of darkness. So that rocks. That's a great premise. Yeah. It was a great premise because it allowed them to both have a complicated economy with souls, like you're saying, and they use souls to like make bricks. It was really horrible to think about all the buildings (laughs) or like people being tortured or something, but I I don't really remember it. I, I could be, you know, it, but it was nightmarish in one sense, but in another sense, it was like, I was very interested in, in, you know, religious studies and like the book just did such a careful job of being like up to you. We don't know. We don't care. Like you can run this completely secularly. You can have yeah. your own religious viewpoint and it still fits in. Cause it, it was like this epicycle. Do you know what I mean? This, this extra thing they put on that could sort of fit with almost any interpretation. You could still say, okay, but in the end you go to heaven or hell. Yeah. <laughs> So it was, it was kind of, you know, to your point, it's like you give people the tools and then they can take it in whatever direction. And in a way, all you can do is have the box text screaming right. red or whatever right. caveats where it's like, please don't um, yell. You know, if you're playing Eat the Reich, don't be like screaming things in fake German about how you hate, you know, whatever people yeah. like that's not smart. Yeah. Uh, and like, can you stop people from doing it? No, but, they, you know. By suggesting, I guess it's it's the kind of cleaning up your own mess. You've suggested a scenario in which a GM could naturally be like, oh, fuck, I'm yeah. playing an, an NPC who's a bad guy. I guess I got to say something bad. Um, so I, I think I like, guess I got to lean in. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think one of the ways that... that um, so I have, in my home games, I have players that love combat. I, I GM a lot of combat, and I'm I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I, I like the tactical side of things. I, I think I heard you both say on our, on, on one of the, the previous uh, episodes that um, there's no, there's no, I don't want to overstate it, but like, because video game combat is always better, that that sort of invalidates the need for like combat centric tabletop gaming. I don't know if that's true, if only just because of like the imagined element and like the flexibility of a good GM. Not to, <laughs> not to like dig up a that's thing a, I disagree with arbitrarily. Just because I was listening to there. There. No, that's great. That's please <laughs> you know what I mean. With... Like, yeah. like I don't know. Like as good as Baldur's Gate three uh, is, like I still think combat with a cool GM and creative players 
and like um you know all your crazy homegrown mechanics will always be not always but can be really fun it can be more interesting one thing that i have i think it's i I was gonna say it, it it can be more interesting i think the thing with the video game stuff is that it maybe i i remember this is a thing that wife has said before is uh yeah that there's a lack of a need for so much like granular sim simulationism when it comes to combat in games and you can kind of focus more on narrative stuff because if you're just there solely for chopping up dudes and stuff like that you you can get that from dark souls 2 or from elden ring or whatever so much of the um i mean what i honestly i think this is an underrated part of um the difficulty of gming is finding a way to never stop combat being narrative and not just like i mean i have a strong belief that like every fight should have narrative relevance like i i don't do trash mobs right like i don't do like here's um here's a random guy and you kill it just so that you're roughed up for when there's the actually meaningful story boss fight or whatever like every fight through a dungeon has to have like some significance i think even more complicated than that is having narrative significance on like a more micro level like each turn characters should be talking to each other stuff should be evolving about the story stuff should be anyway i'm getting sidetracked the point i was trying to make before was like one of the best ways to um help bring the point home with uh and and, and to avoid confusion with like who who is who is bad in an irredeemable way is to just include irredeemable villains and i don't think it's ever interesting if like the main enemy of a of a tabletop campaign is is irredeemable like they're just like a like i don't want to have a campaign that ends with you fighting like oh it's an it's an ultra demon and it's an embodiment of hate and this is a jrpg like that's not interesting you should have morally complex characters but having some characters that are not morally complex kind of rules <laughs> if only because players can check out like they don't need to think about the morality for a second and that can also sort of like help you direct their attention to those characters who are more morally compelling mm-hmm. does that make any sense yeah, like, I think that makes sense have the big have the have the big boss be really interesting and you know narratively have a bunch of stuff going on but Maybe some of their minions just fucking suck, just unambiguous, <laughs> just really bad. And then at least leaves like a bread breadcrumb trail for your players, one, to engage with systems that they enjoy, if they are um, combat likers. And two, you know, like it's like, oh, okay, so these guys are super bad. At least I can get some moral groundwork yeah, get, there. Get a little bit of that moral high ground. Feel, feel right, like yeah. you're a hero instead of just a, a murder hobo. Right, yeah. Is that something that y'all think about with Burrowbound, like when you're writing the settings and things like that? I know that you write some NPCs. Is that is that something that you seed into it? Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, um, that was one of the ways that I think we were successful with Sahuatl Ruins. Not, not just to harp on that one, but there is not like a colonizer guy who you're going to be like, this guy's just a real stand-up citizen, you know? Like, all of them are like, you are here to do looting. You are a you are a brigand intruding on indigenous land. They have interesting things about them, and and for various reasons, your 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 players will probably want to interact with them in ways beyond just like ah, I sentence you to death, right? Um, but 
that is one of those ways that you can like point people to not the correct answer because because correct answer i mean like that's not a tabletop way of thinking about the world right but uh, you want to railroad it too much Right, just to just to get your players on a path where they're not going to be making mistakes, where they're like, "Oh my god, I just did a genocide!" Like in a tabletop game. Wait a second, like no one's gonna feel good after doing that. Like even if it's like, "Haha, you didn't foresee all of the consequences of your actions when you touched the magical MacGuffin and you genocided by mistake." I think I've unfortunately played with people in my past who would who would feel fine with that happening. <laughs> right, so. And like, but that's the point, right? So I, I don't want to be like, ah, oh, only the good, only the good little boys and girls are allowed to, you know, feel like they've won this campaign. Sure. But I do think that, that we, as game creators who, who have a more bird's eye view of the sorts of ways that people are going to be interacting with our content, I think we have some like um, responsibility to find innovative ways to encourage players to encourage GMs to create scenarios in which players are more likely to um, think critically about the consequences of their actions. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I mean, that's it, right? Like, it would be good if people thought about what they did. Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. should try to make that happen. I think that setting up ways in which that conversation can happen through the game text, through the setting text, whatever. I mean, I think that that's, that, I don't want to say it's the best you can do, but I, it's it seems like a step in the right direction is like finding ways yeah. to engage in critical thinking while you're engaging in the product itself yeah here's, here's a dumb one i'm currently running a campaign <laughs> just like let's let's make it really simple i'm currently running a campaign like my main like you know we meet weekly it's uh three hours a week with my good friends we're doing a campaign in a in a in a frontier setting there's a bit of hex crawl i'm borrowing a lot from uh uh, uh blades in the dark and wander home for mechanics i'm, I'm really enjoying the campaign we have a system where like you get tokens and you can exchange the tokens for stuff like either, you know, I get to declare what, what this hex tile includes, or I get to um, uh, just name a trait of this NPC we've just met, or I get to do, you know, um, a blaze in the dark uh, flashback flashback. Is that what they call them? Yeah. So. Um, uh, you just get a token. If you do something that's bold and anti-colonial and as a GM, I could just, make that a rule and that, that i don't think that robs players of their agency like they agreed like this is the vibe of the campaign we want to play and just having a built-in narrative mechanical way of getting people to at least push the the narrative in directions that are both interesting and like <laughs> politically good i i don't see a problem with that <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean a lot of um I mean, I feel like also in the long-standing game you've been we've been playing of Soulfleet, it's like a lot of it's come down to not railroading. You have to do X, Y, or Z, but presenting choices where it's not immediately apparent. You know, within the system you're stuck in what what you should quote unquote do. Right. But it's like it provides time or space for y'all to like talk about it and think about it, which I think is genuinely interesting because then there have been these divergences of opinion among smart people who are all like non-Republicans, right? About right. Like, in, because it's all imagined too so it's not your real life like you can take a different position because you're playing a character you can be like a chaos gremlin but you could also just say like i genuinely don't know given like this world what is the right thing to do but i know some of the things that would be bad so let's like begin to agree on like what we're not going to do guys and and it's been interesting as a gm to have to hear y'all work through that um and so even though i mean i like what you just said like having a system where like 
the GM has a sort of moral <laughs> um fairy godmother like reward yeah. component but and, and but, that only works if 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 the, if it introduces um interesting friction and the the yeah. interesting friction in my campaign is like hey <laughs> anytime you do anti-colonialism while living in a colony like you're probably making things harder for yourself yeah. right and so it forces players into positions where like oh well we just stuck up for someone and now that we're, we're going to get in trouble for that and um having a way of making gameplay more interesting because of the uh narrative choices that you're encouraging that's fun and i think that's baked into Stillfleet in a more fundamental way just because of the way the setting works you're always a loser in a sense like you're like probably some sort of like magical space marine right in in Stillfleet, like or yeah. some or some you know you are a hero with really cool powers but you're still hilariously powerless in the face of just like space capitalism. So the, there's more, there's like so much room for fun, moral gray area and like political, um, you know, co compromises that are yeah. all bad. Like, Oh, no matter who I back, something bad is going to happen. What am I okay with? Like, what do I find acceptable? That is like a fun game to play where people don't feel like, Oh, I did it. I did a fascist and now I didn't have fun at that game after all. It's just like, well, everything's yeah. bad. So I'm going to try to find like the way in which I don't die. Other people don't die. And like things turn out kind of okay. That feels great. That's a what's great all these engines for like, what's, what's a way to have fun. And they, there's different games to do it different ways. Um, and I think, again, it's interesting that Burrowbound, you, you put so much time into, into each month into different ways it could work and like as you said it's the extra constraint of you don't even know the mechanics people are going to yeah. use so you can kind of assume 5e but you can't you can't because you don't want it to be you know we, it's not a dnd base not thing. nearly as um, um like like our our, uh, our patron base is not nearly as uh 5e centric as i feared we we, oh, we did like a big internal study and now mind you a lot of people who are playing dnd 5e are playing pathfinder 2e which is just D&D right. with more math, right. kind of. I mean, politically and in terms of, like, uh, combat uh, focus. I think you mean but a lot of people fun. are playing other settings. Uh, <laughs> I've never played Path. I, I've only played the original Path. I've never played the second edition of Pathfinder. I've, yeah, I've I don't no know how idea. different it is yeah. from the... Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think it's pretty different from... It doesn't matter. I mean, the point First is... Pathfinder. The point is, like, if you make stuff that is not just for people who play D&D those gamers who are starved for content because they don't play D and D and you know, the world doesn't automatically cater to them. Uh, I have found that a lot of those um, players and GMs have flocked to our content because it's like, Hey, you know, nobody is really making third party content for a lot of indie RPGs. Yeah. Right. And a lot of indie RPGs can't even make a lot of first party content because this is a hard industry. Yeah. Right. We're, so making, yeah, yeah. so making, I mean, uh, um, I don't mean accessibility in some sort of grander way, but making content that is accessible just by virtue of, hey, all you cool people who are branching out into different systems, we're making stuff that is like totally compatible with what you're doing, including like guidelines for translation where possible. Like that rocks. That just means you get like, <laughs> that means you get the cool gamers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what our community is. It's like, it's the cool gamers. <laughs> awesome. That sounds mean, but you know. Yeah, it's fine. To everyone else. It's fine to have preferences. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, 
yeah, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. There, I keep on thinking about how there's this parallel between the music that you're creating, both for Burrow Bound and for Music D20, and you know, writing system agnostic setting. Like both of them are are game or system agnostic, and so there's this interesting kind of dance that you have to do, where it's like, okay, well, I want it to have this vibe, but it can't be overly specific. And yeah, and you know, we make system agnostic content, but. Like, given that we know, I said it's not all D&D players. It's still, um, if not a majority, a plurality of D&D players. I would imagine there's still quite a few. Yeah. We we definitely have them first in mind when at least, when even thinking of like, you know, here's a dumb one. Like, I know the 5e, um, like, fiend taxonomy, right? Like, devils and demons are different in this very specific way in D&D that may not be the same in other fantasy taxonomies. Um, But I kind of just made the taxonomy roughly that for our newest setting because that's what most people are going to be starting off with as a baseline. And that's annoying, right? Like, I don't like, I don't, you know, the if you look up what a kobold is in fantasy like, like real, like mythology, like kobolds are basically just like Germanic goblins, but at some point they became lizards. (laughs) And so like, when I write a kobold now, I know that D&D and Pathfinder players are going to think kobold equals lizard. So we say kobold equals lizard. And that's that screwed up way in which D&D and before it, Lord of the Rings have basically made canonical these elements of fantasy that originally were like, cobbled together from so many mythologies and you know I, I don't really have a great way of disentangling that other than like you know one setting at a time being like this one's different i know you think you know how like this one setting's supposed to work but like this element is different like and you know our goblins have short noses they don't have long noses because that's anti-semitic they have short noses like little stuff like that just like slowly disentangling this notion that there's like i mean how insane is that that there's a standard version of how yeah, fantasy works it is. like that's nuts it is i yeah there's no harry potter goblins in this universe we're working on a magic school setting right now like that's like our big thing oh wow right now um and i never grew up with harry potter really i read a couple yeah. books as a kid but it was like not like formative for my fantasy upbringing and Wow, like that's been such a blessing to not. Be, I, I keep having to ask my wife, like, "Hey, does Harry Potter have this? And if so, uh, what do they do so I can like not do that?" If only because, um, I, I start with the assumption that J.K. Rowling was wrong about stuff, yeah. and then it becomes easier to make like <laughs> good fantasy. I think instead. that is the the right place to start when you're dealing. With yeah, it. of course. <laughs> yeah, I also never, I never read the Harry Potter books. I think I, I saw the movies, maybe a couple of them in the theaters and stuff, but they, they started, this is a bit of personal lore for anybody that's interested. Uh, those books started getting popular when I was in sixth grade and I was very chubby and had round glasses and mess, messy brown hair. So the, the insult of choice for me was to call me Harry Potter. So I was yeah. like, I'm never reading those books. Never. I want nothing to do with that world. And now in retrospect, I feel very vindicated. I feel very yeah, good I about it. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, it's just not it's it's not the kind of fantasy I liked anyway. And yeah. I, I felt vindicated um, when she was outed as a as a tremendous turf mm-hmm. and just a sort of a piece of shit. Like you know, when it just felt so like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like I just, yeah. I mean, I I get the appeal on the one hand because I remember people getting so into like the movies when I was in college. They were coming out. There's and, one and good one. I watched them. I was like, yeah, Quaron, interesting. Right? 
as well? Yeah, I don't know. Some of them in the middle had like time travel and werewolves. I was like, this is pretty cool, but you know, it's for kids, whatever. <laughs> but uh, I tried to, I looked at the books and, and I thought the writing was, was just really pure. It was just not good. And so um, people would always defend it. And then later she just was obviously horrible. And I was like, this is great. Now I don't have to care about this ever again, except, Will, you're going to make this whole, um, you know, it's Harry Potter, but not uh, setting. Well, so what's great is that. it's just, it's so not, I mean, it's such a weird setting. It's like, the yeah. setting is, it's a magic school, but it's at the edge of the world interpreted like literally like at the edge of campus, there's just like the abyss of space. And uh, my college had that the space abyss. <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, it's like it's so because you you know you just decide. Hey, I'm gonna choose which baggage I take with me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of fantasy, yeah, we've had to sort of play, um, take a devil's bargain, and assume that a lot of our players are gonna be D and D people, and start with the assumption that, yeah, we're just gonna accept some of that D and D stuff as vaguely canonical. Um, but other stuff we just get to, we get to, we get to choose because it's system agnostic. We get to say like, Hey, in our setting, it's this, in your setting, you can use our version of, uh, you know, canon fantasy, or you can use your own thing. And that's a blessing because ultimately 99% of the way anyone uses any tabletop resource, even systems is they're going to pick and choose what they're going to use. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is the lamest shit I'll say today, and I think we're approaching uh, wife's heart out. So, I'll, like, maybe we can leave with this. Uh, say some lame, I, lame stuff. What I always say with Burrowbound is we offer a buffet of inspiration, uh, which Ooh. is lame as hell. But the idea is like, but that's like every tabletop resource, right? <laughs> we're giving you a lot of ideas. We're giving you a lot of music. You can pick and choose. You're still like, I do know people who only use Will Savino music to score their sessions. Which, like, I wouldn't, I mean, if I were someone else, I wouldn't want that, right? You should be getting music from a lot of different sources, because that's more interesting. Yeah. But you can. And that's but also cool. stream Will Sabino's music so that yeah, it's royalties. <laughs> and... <laughs> but, you know, it's always more interesting if you decide what you're going to take um, and what you're going to leave behind. And all we can do as creators is, like, try to create the cool stuff that people want to pick and choose from. And um, I feel really blessed to be in a situation where I get to make stuff and make bold choices where I'm not feeling constricted by um, the constraints of the dragon game, where I'm not feeling constrained by like even, oh, I need to make these numbers work. (laughs) Like, I don't even need to balance encounters, you know? Uh, Yeah, must be nice. (laughs) It is, it sure is, yeah. So... I don't know. That, uh, I guess leave that as a pitch for like, you don't have to. Tabletop is freeform, right? I, I don't even play a system. I even I don't I haven't built a system, but I just grab and choose stuff from the stuff that I like, and that's that's more fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, I mean, we could talk all day. I mean, if also if y'all want to keep talking, you can we can keep talking. I just don't know, invite but... me back for a future YB role, and don't make this a limited series. Make it a permanent fixture. Let's do you it. Got it. I, okay. I'm down. Yeah, you got Chris, it. What do you think? That sounds great. Cool. Hi, Chris, I had all kinds of questions for you when we were talking about politics. I just something I want to come back to. Maybe next we'll have to do another just like you and me chatting, but I want to hear more about religion and how you're thinking about I know we talked a little about this with Don Smacab, but um, you know, how how do you want people to interpret the right way to do historical France and like some yeah. of the things we we're talking about? Um, it's interesting as your game is set right before colonialism like takes off from Europe. And so it'd be interesting to really think about ways to sort of um try to proof a historical game against that which mm-hmm. is something we we've 
thought about and Stephen Aubrey, who we'll have on, has, has thought a lot about. So these are these are like really live questions for game design, depending on what where you set your game. But yeah, they all they all have politics, even if you're setting it yeah. um, pointlessly far in the future. It's still kind of always today. Uh, or <laughs> mimics some yeah. of the problems. Pointlessly far in the future. Pointlessly far in the past. Pointlessly far away right. in some space. In in uh, what is it from Star Wars? I don't even remember. I hate Star Galaxy, Wars. Galaxy, yeah. far, far away. <laughs> God, I yeah. don't like Star Wars. It's still basically Queens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love Buffalo, that. I guess. In, in I love case. That. Uh, <laughs> it's snowed today. Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, it's nice. Yeah. yeah, I think I, it's Bubble just, snow. it's ultimately it's important to remember uh i think you, you know you're kind of saying this will but as creators like you know nothing gets made in a vacuum we we have a history of colonialism we have a history of capitalism that we have to live through and that is going to be replicated in the things that we've made but i like the idea of picking and choosing the baggage that you bring yeah. along as a way of as a way of i don't know like editing or or corralling the conversation towards and there's like an there's an obvious hmm. alternative here right which is you can you can I swear I won't make this long. You can you can <laughs> you can talk about uh, you can have systems where you just don't engage with that stuff at all. Sure. Like not even in a not even in a Dungeons and Dragons sort of way where it's like yeah we don't talk about it but it's there. But like there are games where hey let's imagine literally there's no capitalism here. Literally there's no colonialism here. Like I'm I mentioned it before but I really enjoy uh, a lot of the writing in Wander Home where it's like the worst thing that can happen is like you meet an animal who is sad. Um, and like, you can even choose to get rid of all of the, um, they're called traumatic traits. You can just not have traumatic traits in your game. And then you won't even meet an animal who's sad. Um, and okay. So this is not a critique of that. My, I am much more I, interested. I'll do the critique of that, but yeah, 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 yeah. I am much more interested in having settings where like, Hey, let's actually examine what would happen if you were an adventurer in Mesoamerica. Let's examine what would happen if like, um, yeah, these goblins seem cool, but their recklessness is endangering people. Like, let's examine situations in which there are meaningful consequences mm. because that makes it feel like what you do um, matters and it, it just gives you more room for... <laughs> this is so obvious. It gives you more room for, like, interesting roleplay. Yeah, and just because in real life... the possibility of, like, getting things wrong. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, the, because the games are ultimately based on real emotions and real people, and yeah. so even though I'm imagining I'm an animal, like we're about to put out an animal game, right? I'm, I love animal games, but if you have a set- setting where nothing can ever really go wrong, and the worst that can happen is like, oh, I got a thorn in my toe, I'm sad. It's like in real life, animals die unloved all the time, and it's very sad, and we have to work hard to, as like conservationists, to like not destroy their habitats for one, or like to eat less meat, you know, and like think about you know um the resources the finite resources the biogeosphere of earth and like not you know killing ourselves by continuing to burn fossil fuels and those are like hard things and it's not that every game needs to touch on all of them all the time but like if you take away literally all of them and it's just utopia game i feel like you've also taken away the friction the the relationship to your real lived experiences and real tensions in your life that make games and especially imaginal games with friends, like social games where you have to imagine stuff, kind of the most interesting. And otherwise, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying about video games. It's like, yeah, just play a video game. Like, if you want pure escapism, I like video games just fine. I don't play nearly as many as you do, but, like, I I, I do like them. And it's like they have their place. I just think, you know, from the Dragon Game on, these games are actually really cool because they kind of require you to, like, compromise and negotiate and figure out what your politics are in a given even if it's very silly like cutting a goblin's head off or not or just scaring him you know whatever it's still like that's actually that tension is is really real and and important so anyway i I think we're just 
really agreeing with each other. Yeah, sorry. I should have been like, it's good to do a fetishism, and then we could have had a real conversation. Oh, no, no, no. Let's let's not do that. Uh, no, that's, that's, I'm going to stop you there. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the agreement. Um, Chris, did you have any Did you have any last uh, thoughts, questions for Will? And we will, will, will absolutely have you back on if your game. I, I always enjoy talking to you, so thanks. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'll never shut up. I'm, I love, uh, <laughs> great, great, to, great to talk to you both. It's really nice yeah. to meet you, Chris. Yeah, great. good to meet you, too. I, I don't think I have any more questions uh, other than, uh, well, no, it's not a question. It's a comment. I'm very excited to check out more of your music. Um, and you can be found. So oh, music, your, your music we, project is music D20, right? There, so there's music under both names. Okay. If you search music D20 or Burrow Bound or Will Savino, you'll get, I'm almost at 500 tracks, um, just wow, in my dang. tabletop, just in my tabletop output. Um, I have a big old spreadsheet. Um, that'll be a good that's milestone. Good. Maybe I'll like take a couple of days off. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should. Um, How much, what's the, not allowed. Do you have the, the data? What's the percentage of those 500 tracks that are tavern tunes? Oh, uh, I can t- tavern is I have them all tagged, which is really <laughs> useful for our website. Our website has like pretty good metadata and stuff. I can I can control F for tavern and see how many. It's it's not that many. We'll, we'll follow up on that next time. It's double digits. I mean, big time double digits. <laughs> big time double digits. Big time. Uh, um, uh, Chris, uh, my my wife and I want tattoos. Oh, also. great. Uh, she told me to uh, mention that to you. Great, I love it. Wife, wife was, wife was uh, showing off your work when we were at Gen Con. And yeah. So yeah. That'll be a conversation for another time, sometime when we're in New York. Come on, come on down to Brooklyn anytime. Love yeah, or, or we'll go up to Buffalo. We'll have to do uh, we'll have to do like a Why We Roll get-together. I definitely think we should do one in Brooklyn for sure. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we might have to also do, you know, finally, I, I got to check out Buffalo. It's, I've heard such great things. Um. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Will. And um, yeah, I mean, we could, again, there's so many topics we just scraped on, but I really appreciate you went really deep. And uh, yeah, I do really like your work, both um, musically and as a writer and game designer. So everyone should check out Borough Bound. Uh, they, you know, y'all have a Patreon, but you can also just Google it, I think, right? Burrowbound.com is finally good. There you go. Got it. Uh, you don't have the Twitter, but you have the, the, the URL. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, check out Music D20 or, you know, again, a lot of music's on Boroughbound. So um, Will is relatively easy to find. Um, and any last thoughts, anything, any last words, Will, before we, uh, we close the stream? A buffet of inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's great. <laughs> it's going to cut straight to the outro <laughs> music after you say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Tendall. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, uh, I will. I will just add. We Will and I collaborated on. Um, it was really mostly Will's work because uh, obviously there was a Burrowbound setting that was very spooky. We're recording this on actual Halloween. It's called Soap and Barra, so the episode will come out later. But um, uh, I translated it with Will and I translated it into the Grit system, so the, the system that underpins pins Still Fleet and Sunrise Kingdom and Blister Critters, and uh, and that's just a standalone fantasy horror you know, game you can play with a bunch of pregens um, and it's very spooky. So I just want to shout out um, one of the many, many cool things you've done. And it was nice to like collaborate with you very directly on that. It's, so. it's very funny to hear Chris describe Dance Macabre as a, uh, as a Souls-like because this, um, this adventure, Sutwin Barrow, that That's I worked right. on with Wythe is a roguelite. Oh, you wanted to play a roguelite uh, in a tabletop setting. Uh, that's what we made for uh, Halloween 2022. And we released the uh, Grit System Remix couple weeks ago yeah this is great well, i love it i'm um, like i yeah. we i think we're gonna still play test that with uh we're still gonna play it with, yeah with we're party, gonna, right yeah That'll we're gonna play it next week i think uh finally so, which is you know much wait. delayed anyway cool. uh all right y'all uh thanks a lot this is why we roll
and uh, I'm going to click end stream. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Our theme music is by the brilliant Sam Tyndall and Arpline. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitch and what used to be Twitter at Why We Roll, and on Instagram at whyweroll.pod. You can find out more about Dance Macabre at timespaceplace.itch.io slash dance-macabre. You can find out more about Stillfleet at stillfleet.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>